we are fortunate in that um, we have um, received a lot of support uh, through the DOJ in, um, in building our program and growing it. And so I was brought on in um, January to lend some structure um, and administrative support to the program. So I, um, I do have a bachelor's degree in psychology, but I am not a counselor or mental health professional. My job, like I said, is to facilitate um, the, uh, the program. And so, how do I forward this? Sorry. We're gonna talk about a couple of things today. Um, understanding the key components of a peer-driven support program. So essentially, what is it and, and what do we do? Um, and then for those of you outside of APD, um, how to build a law enforcement program in your agency um, and why that might be beneficial to um, your department or your agency. And then to offer some information about how our program here at APD works. Um, if I can offer you any guidance or support, um, then that's really my goal here today. Um, and also, I am here to learn as well. So if you have feedback or recommendations, either on our program here at APD or just um, generally, I definitely welcome that. So please feel free to, um, to offer your input. So what is peer-driven support? Um, let's start with what peer means in general. I know that probably in some of the other um, CIU didactics, peer has referred to an individual with a mental illness. Um, it can also be used um, to refer to individuals with addiction or alcoholism. Um, in this, in, uh, what we mean in, in what we are referencing here is peer simply meaning equal. And so that's the idea that um, individuals with common experience and circumstances, um, and so officer to officer, um, dispatcher to dispatcher, we'll get in a little bit more to all of the components of our department, but um, so it's really just one equal offering support to another. And peer support occurs when people provide knowledge, experience, emotional, or practical help to each other. And so peer support happens organically throughout the department. Um, we are not reinventing the wheel here or, um, or doing something that is not already done, and I understand that. But we are trying to organize and coordinate um, in a way that ensures that um, that no one falls through the cracks or that an officer or um, employee at APD, that they never feel like there's nowhere for them to turn. So I really like this idea of um, practical support as well. Um, that really is the idea that, you know, especially with the recruits, um, you can offer them some guidance and you probably already do um, in terms of just things like how do you submit a leave request or how do you write a department memo to get additional resources? You know, people take time out of their day um, that they're not mandated to do to assist each other. Um, and that happens already. And that's a really cool component to think of as well. So if you're thinking of starting a, a program in your department, it's not that it's not already occurring. Um, it's that you can formalize that process. And I think that we found a benefit at APD due to that. The emotional support is the, um, the crux of our program. That's really what we offer. 
Um, but I, I like I like the idea of thinking of it in several different ways. So peer support um, commonly refers to an initiative consisting of trained supporters who guide and support others toward increased wellness. Um, so peer support is not um, particularly solution-based. Um, it's definitely not a tactical um, debrief or anything like that. It's not about what could have been done differently. Um, it's simply offering um, common experience and um, support with the idea of um, improving, you know, um, quality of life, improving sat job satisfaction, and general um, um, wellness within within your um, within your life. So we're going to talk about some key components to um, all peer support programs. <clears throat> My knowledge comes from um, simply researching and, and training that I received along with the other team members here at APD. Um, the majority of the guidelines that I go over are available, um, particularly through the International Association of Chiefs of Police. They have some great guidelines. Oh, I'm clicking my pen. Okay, they have <laughs> sorry. They have some great guidelines, um, and and um, that's all you need to look is IACP um, peer support guidelines. But we're going to talk about some of those today. So, the key components I I cannot stress enough that the team members are the keystone of your program. They are um, the ones that do the work, that offer the support, that volunteer their time. Um, my team members here at APD are wonderful. And, and they really, in any program that you're developing, um, that is, is where to spend your um, focus and your energy is, is in getting team members who are committed um, to the program and also um, who believe in, in what we're trying to do here. So that's a really um, important component. That's the main component of peer support is the team members. Um, administration. So, uh, what you, you need um, buy-in from the department, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in building a program, but um, there needs to be support all the way um, from the top down, and that this is, that officer wellness is important, um, and that offering support in many different ways is important. Um, they, like I said here at APD, I'm very fortunate that I was brought on as a full-time um, civilian to coordinate this program and facilitate. Um, but if you're in a smaller program and maybe you don't have the resources to do that, you'll need that um, still um, the ability to use your volunteers. Um, it does take quite a bit of, of their time. And so it also helps with um, things like this. I have the opportunity to come and do this. Um, I provide training. Um, and awareness within the department, and so um, it's it's important that that every member um, agree with and support at least the the um, foundation of of the idea of officer wellness. Clinical supervision. So this is um, really important. Peer support members are not um, mental health professionals. We do receive. Um, a limited amount of training. Our here at APD, we received three days worth of training. Two of those were in um, assisting individuals, um, and then the last day was in group crisis intervention. 
Um, but that clinical supervision is so important to guide the program and to offer um, support to your team members um, and to answer questions. And so that we need somewhere to go when, it, when um, a situation has um, gone beyond our, our scope. And so there will um, probably be instances where, um, you know, um, real crises, they need that, that clinical supervision. Yes. So Matt Timothy PD, could could you describe what that means or what is clinical supervision? So I can tell you what we have here at APD and then what I know some a couple of other departments have. So we are lucky to have Dr. Rosenbaum and the behavioral sciences section. So we have in-house um, um, assistance. <laughs> and so uh, we have a board of directors and Troy Luna, one of our clinicians, is a member of that board and he helps us to identify training needs, um, provides that um, guidance and will assist any team member with if they have a question regarding, you know, how do I help this member or do they need to, do I need to escalate that care um, or what can, you know, what can I do to assist them. Other departments that perhaps do not have the um, benefit of having in-house um, behavioral sciences, uh, typically the, I think the guideline and the suggestion is to contract with someone to do that. Contract with someone who is on call and able to um, uh, take those um, referrals at any time because you know the need for support and crises do not happen um, always Monday through Friday 8 to 5 and so your team needs to know that um, who they um, call and who they escalate that care to to ensure that um, that the the people that we're trying to assist actually get the help that they need is that okay um, confidentiality. Confidentiality is very important. So in the state of New Mexico, uh, peer supporters or peer support counselors are not covered by HIPAA and they are not covered by um, a protected legal conversations such as what is found with a mental health professional, um, a, a chaplain or a priest, um, and, and then of course an attorney and clients and even spouses have some protections there. We do not have that. And so what we can do within the department is ensure confidentiality um, in uh, what is referred to as a private conversation. Um, and then in our SOP, um, it's, it's stated that we will not, um, supervisors will not ask for information about those contacts regarding individuals. Um, and then we are confidential even amongst each other. So I think that's a really important thing. Um, we do not as a team get together and discuss, uh, oh, well, I called this person after this event and this is what they said or how they felt. Um, I make the referral 
or ask someone to reach out and then they contact that person and that's the end of it. Um, it does not even come back to me what was discussed and it is not discussed um, amongst each other. The guidelines are, and, and this is true for our department, um, that there are instances where that confidentiality has to be broken. Um, and that is in the case of if um, the individual is homicidal or suicidal, so they're a threat or danger to themselves or others. Um, if domestic violence, child abuse, or elder abuse is occurring or has occurred. Um, and if they're in need of medical attention. And so that, um, I can describe that as if I called, me personally, if I called peer support and said, I'm in need of help, um, I just shot myself, but you know, I'm, I'm okay, or, or I've been cutting or something like that, um, and you know that I need medical attention, um, then we as team members are compelled to, to go ahead and, and call for um, an ambulance or, or rescue and, and get that um, medical attention for them as well. And the best thing that I can say about that is in any peer support contact, um, we are trained to um, go over those limitations up front um, and to make sure that the person that you're speaking with, the individual you're offering support to, understands that if those things are disclosed, that we um, have a duty to report. And also, if you are in need of, um, of escalated care or medical attention, that, that we are going to call for that. Um, training. So, like I said, initially, uh, peer support does happen organically within the department, and that's a great thing. I think that's wonderful. Um, but training is offered um, to um, help with things like active listening skills, um, identifying when. Um, we do not diagnose people, but we are trained to identify maybe when they do need that level of care. Um, things like um, being upfront about asking if an individual is considering suicide or has a plan to do that. Um, I've seen some guidelines. We have such comprehensive um, training here at APD and especially in mental health um, training that we so far have not found it necessary, but I know that um, Things like mental health first aid, psychological first aid are really recommended for departments. And so if you have access to those um, or would like information about that, please contact me and I'd be happy to give that to you. So not assuming that your team members know how to um, identify mental health um, crises or that they know even how to interact with an individual that um, especially a coworker or someone that they care about, how to interact with them and have those conversations about um, things like suicide or um, domestic violence, um, anything like that. That's where the training comes in. And like I said, we had three days. We also have ongoing training. I'm, I'm hoping to coordinate additional training and additional team members, but um, that is a key component and is a, a guideline recommended across the board for programs. And then resources. Um, knowing the resources in your area that are available and, um, and being able to um, rely on that information and have those referrals at hand is very important. And so 
Um, we, like I said, have um, behavioral sciences in-house. We also have the employee assistance program through um, the city of Albuquerque. And then uh, we have really great health insurance. And I think that people sometimes forget about that. Um, you can seek um, mental health treatment or treatment for it, any um, health treatment that is necessary through your insurance. And that will not, um, you know, does not have to go through an in-house resource or, or really um, through anyone. And so understanding what those are and, and having them at your disposal is really important because peer support is not um, a, an island to itself. Our um, goal is to uh, be a bridge towards um, professional services and then and simply rely on that idea of offering um, common experience. So building your own program, I've talked about a lot of this, but we'll go over um, some of it if you're starting from scratch. Like I said, here at APD, I, we were fortunate that the Department of Justice mandated this program, and so it's happening. Uh, we have the support that we need. Um, well, it's true. I, you know, uh, and so we have the support that we need, and we'll be here at least until um, that agreement ends. And I, my goal is to be here for... Um, a very long time and to ensure that this program stays uh, even past that. But for starting a program, um, you'll need to uh, secure that, um, those resources and that, um, and that support from the top. Um, determine your organizational structure. So um, the peer support program is neither a part of the behavioral sciences section or a part of the crisis intervention unit or EAP. We, in that way, we are um, separate and individual on our own. Um, you'll need to uh, understand how, like me, if you're going to have a full-time coordinator or um, if you're going to... Um, designate a, a sworn or civilian um, part-time to doing this, or how that um, system is going to be set up. We also have a board of directors, and that is um, encouraged and suggested. But um, the board of directors is made up of both um, sworn and civilian personnel, and they guide the overall um, scope and, and just um, help to um, decide what we do and how we do it um, and the best way to go about that. Have a plan for escalating care. We talked about that with clinical supervision. So um, if you do not have in-house behavioral sciences, um, a contract with someone, get someone who is willing to um, volunteer their time to do that or to at least guide you in that. Um, Consider including all members of your agency. So here at APD, we have um, sworn. Um, I have 20 sworn volunteers. And then we also include um, communications. So that's dispatch and 911 call takers, um, our crime scene specialists, our prisoner transport unit. Um, we have two team members from the coast um, unit. And then I guess you can... There used to be one other admin um, team member. Uh, she's since left, but uh, and I guess you can consider me as as an admin team member, um, as well as uh, facilitating the program in general. 
that's really important. Um, the I think the conversations and the discussions that have come about, even with amongst um, our team here at APD, um, between let's say dispatch and the officers or the crime scene specialists um, and the officers has been really wonderful and beneficial. And um, I think that it definitely um, has aided in that idea of overall well-being and, um, and that uh, family mentality and that idea that we're all in this together. Identify and select your volunteers. So I have I was not um, an employee here when the current team was selected. Like I said before, I think they're all wonderful. I love them very much. Um, but <laughs> the um, but it, when you're looking to start a program, there's also got some guidelines on this. But there's some key things that you want to look for, uh, in my opinion, and that's um, team members that are willing to take initiative, that are proactive. Um, that are willing to be available. So our team members are not on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but their information is out there on our website for contact. And so they are willing to, um, to provide support essentially at any time that you need it. Um, and they offer their personal cell phone numbers and their email addresses to do that. Um, another thing to think about if you're going to provide on-scene support is that every situation is different. And so you want um, individuals who are able to um, self-manage um, and that also um, are willing to uh, just show up when and where they're needed. Um, all We cannot provide enough training to possibly anticipate every scenario that will come up or even phone call that will come up. When you answer that phone, you don't really know what the person on the other line is going to say or what their particular issue is. And just being willing to um, offer that support and, and just sort of, I don't know, play as you go, you know, um, that's really important. And the main thing I would say in your volunteers is, you know, peer support is um, founded on the idea of that common experience. And so the it's not only going to be, oh, let me listen to your problems and then offer you some guidance, but also um, to be willing to share in that common experience and, and say, you know, I um, have been through an incident like that or I have had um, relationship difficulties or whatever it is. So you really need people that are willing to share their own experiences and that I believe that takes a lot of courage. Um, I know it does for me. So um, those are things you can look for when you're when you're interviewing or selecting your volunteers. And then raising awareness. So part of what I do is um, uh, try and ensure that every member of APD knows who we are and how to get in touch with us and what we do. It's not enough for me to just say, hey, we have a peer support program, call us. You know, people want and need to know, well, what does that mean and, and what do y'all do? Um, we have flyers posted at every substation. We have um, a, a page on the APD web. Um, you're welcome to contact me at any time. And so that will take, um, when you're building a program, that will take some time and energy as well. It's just making sure that everyone knows who you are and, and that you're available to them. Um, a bunch of volunteers sitting around uh, on their own with no one knowing that they're available isn't particularly um, helpful.
And lastly, um, our program here at APD. So I've covered a lot of this already in my talk, but we'll go through it. Um, organization, like I said, we are our own um, unit. And so um, I report um, to the deputy chief um, and that helps uh, in a lot of ways. There is, um, along with our confidentiality, there is a part in our SOP that states that if you break confidentiality as a team member, um, that there are sanctions for that. And so, unfortunately, we can't go back and make it not happen. But if it was reported to me, I would not go through the traditional chain of command, like through your chain of command, tell your sergeant, your lieutenant, your commander, um, and go up through it that way. That would just, that does not, I guess, stop the bleeding. Um, I could report to the deputy chief um, and then he can make a determination on that. Um, our team members, like I said, we have 20 um, sworn officers and then the 10 civilians from all areas of APD. We offer phone support. Um, so everyone's cell phone number is available at all times through our website. Um, and then on-scene support. So at the request of the incident commander or the officer involved um, in a, a critical incident, um, if they request through communications that peer support show up on scene, um, we will do that. And we have a primary and secondary that is on call every week um, and they are available to provide that on-scene support. Reach outs are really, really important, I think, getting and starting a program. Um, that helps to identify who you are and that you really are willing and wanting to help. So I, um, with the assistance, of course, of tech support here at APD and all of our numerous resources, I've um, set up a system where I um, receive an automated email every day and that email tells me um, different uh, calls. I, it literally comes from the CAD um, based on, on criteria that I came up with in, in talking to officers and team members and in research that I've done um, that we want to reach out on. So those include um, homicides and suicides, uh, dead on arrival, um, any calls regarding children, um, any severe cases of animal abuse. Um, and so that really is this massive email that I get though and I sort of go through and identify the ones that I think we should reach out on and then I contact a team member and I simply say, hey, can you call this person? Again, I do not get back um, a, a report, I guess, on that or um, anything and, and the officers that we reach out to are not compelled or mandated to talk to us. So if you have a team member or if you already have had a team member reach out to you and say, hey, um, I heard you were on this call and I just wanted to see how you were doing, you are not required to talk to them. Of course, they're calling you because they want to help if they can, but you're not required to talk to them. And if you say no, thank you, or that's cool, but I'm fine, it, the contact ends right there. Um, and, and I don't actually get back um, a, a report on whether or not you took that support or didn't or what happened after that point. Again, I just facilitate the contact so that we can um, have as wide of a reach as possible. And then referrals. We, um, I have a list on our webpage of all different types of 
um, law enforcement minded support. There are other um, Safe Call Now is a really good one. That's a 24-hour hotline that's manned by volunteers nationwide, all, all first responders. Um, there's information on there regarding other resources, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, uh, information regarding um, relationships and I, all kinds of stuff that if I find it, I put it on there. You're also welcome to contact me for some of that stuff or anything that you need if you want further information about um, resources that are available and I won't even ask you why you want it. So if you call me and you say, Melissa, I want to know the treatment centers in Albuquerque, in New Mexico, anywhere, um, I will not say, well, why do you need to know or want to know? I will just compile the information and get that back to you. Um, my goal really is just to make sure that everyone has what they need. Um, and, and I'll do anything we can to make sure that that happens. As I said, my, my name is Gay. I work for the autism program at UNM. Um, I have an interest in um, DD and mental health because I have a 30-year-old daughter who has autism and I have a 27-year-old son who has schizophrenia and have been working in this field for probably 20 years. And my name is Lorian King and I also work at the autism programs and I work with the autism family and provider resource team. Um, I also happen to be a family member. I have two adult children and one son with autism. So the um, topic that we're asked to present on is the um, developmental disabilities waiver, and we're going to get through that. And, um, it's kind of weighty, so um, I, I don't expect that you're going to be um, terribly engaged, but we're, we're going to try. Um, and then um, we'd love to answer questions. So we'd just like you to get an idea of um, who's eligible for the, the waiver, and then there's an, um, not an alternative, but something that people can use while um, maybe waiting for the DD waiver called the Community um, Benefit through Centennial Care. We're gonna talk about that. Um, and then we're gonna just talk about where um, folks can go for more information. So the waivers in New Mexico right now, we have the DD waiver that we're gonna talk mostly about. It's in two um, forms. It's in a traditional form where a person has a case manager who's responsible for their budget and um, coordinating their care. And then we have a MEVIA form that's um, for people who can direct their own care. Then we have a medically fragile children's waiver, um, which actually now goes through adulthood. I don't know if you will um, be interacting much with, with those folks because they need technology to um, stay alive. So they're, they're pretty um, much in their homes a lot. Um, then Centennial Care, our um, Medicaid Managed Care um, program in New Mexico actually um, is a waiver. Um, and that, that's just information only for um, people who talk waiver. That, that's one of our waivers. So um, the DD waiver is a Medicaid program and it looks at the income of the individual and not the family. Um, so like in, in my case, my, um, we, we both had um, jobs and had money, but the um, expenses of having a kiddo with autism and the therapy was so expensive that um, we were able to get on the waiver and pay some of um, the, the costs of um, my daughter's therapy. 
And then the setting is in either the home or the community. It's not in an institution. New Mexico is one of the um, states that has closed our um, closed institutions, so we don't have that model of care anymore. So this is the, the eligibility. One of the questions I was um, asked um, when putting it together is people wanted to know around who could be on the waiver. And they've really tightened up stuff. You have to have um, an, a documented IQ under, um, the age, under 70 um, before the age of 18, or a related condition like autism, CP, Down syndrome. And um, that has to kind of merge with the um, intellectual impairment. And you have to have significant limitations in at least three areas of um, life activity before 22. And then they, they have to decide that you really need, um, you need the clinical um, need for these services. So the three, um, three areas that they're looking at is self-care, receptive and expressive language, learning, mobility, self-direction, capacity for independent living, and economic self-sufficiency. And some of these things, um, when children um, att attempt, to, or their families attempt to get them on the DD waiver waiting list, they don't really know um, how self-direction, capacity for independent living, um, and self-sufficiency are gonna be. So a lot of times people will be told that they're waitlisted, um, and that they will know more um, as, as they grow and develop and um, encourage families to um, keep the Department of Health um, informed uh, uh, about how things are going. So it's really important for, for families to keep track of all of the documentation and paperwork for any evaluation, especially from medical providers. And um, I'm going to step back a second. What we didn't say is that the Department of Health um, administers this program, but it is a Medicaid program. It's the, um, one of the programs that um, Human Services has allowed another agency to um, manage. And so th these are the services that people who are on the waiver would get. They would get case management. They would get day services, which would mean, like, for an adult, a day program to go to. Um, and we have several of those in, in, in Albuquerque and lots throughout the state. Living supports, which can mean um, as they can be in a, a group home. They um, can live in, my daughter lives independently and has somebody who comes in um, just a couple times a month and um, checks that she knows how to manage her checkbook and, and, and that kind of thing. So um, there's a wide range of living supports. Uh, therapies are available. Um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and then some um, behavior therapy. Assistive technology for people who need um, technology to communicate, um, iPads, um, those kind of things are, are available. And then um, independent living transition services to kind of move from a more restricted level of care to a um, more independent level. And then em employment services, like a, a job coach, somebody to um, help you through your day if you're working. Community supports are um, a staff member who takes you out into the community to do um, kind of activities of daily living that, that other people do that um, the individual might need some support with. And there's more. <laughs> um, 
in home the if um, like I said my my daughter either has somebody to, to come in the home or in a group home there um, is staff available all the time um, and depending on the person's level of need there might be one-on-one -on -one support they might just be able to um, check in with a staff member at, at the home there's nursing available there's nutrition um, personal care is just help with activities of daily living Crisis support is um, really what it is, is additional funding if somebody's having a behavioral issue and all of a sudden needs either one-on-one -on -one support or two-on-one -on -one support until um, things are stabilized, the, the state has some ability to do that. There's some dental services. There's some respite for people who still live at, at home for their caregiver to get respite. Um, environmental modification means that they can change um, if somebody needs a roll-in shower, if they need a ramp, if, if they need um, things like that. And then non-medical transportation to um, all, all the activities of living. So um, we were asked how people got in touch with um, waiver um, intake, and these are the um, offices um, throughout the state. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the in a second about the challenges though. We'll send out those email or the numbers in an email to you guys. Okay. Um, the, the huge issue around the DD waiver is, is the wait for services. Um, my daughter is 30 now and when um, we got her on the waiver after she was, or got her on the waiting list after she was diagnosed with autism and at that time it was a two-year waiting, two-year wait. So. Um, she's diagnosed at two, um, got on at four. Now people um, wait pretty much 12 years is the average. Why is it so long? Um, it's around money. It's, it's allocations. And the um, advocates have taken the, the state to court several times based on some federal kind of lawsuits. And, and what the court has decided, even federally, is that... Um, when the money is available, the state needs to um, allocate more people. It needs to um, decrease the waiting list, and the money just hasn't been available. And I expect um, they're supposed to do another allocation in April, and I expect that that's not going to happen um, just because of the state budget. So we're, um, we're looking at a, a pretty serious situation. And so there are more people um, on, and they... Several years ago, the state didn't like the term waiting list because we all complain about a waiting list, so they call it a central registry. So the central registry is the waiting list. Um, and uh, those of us who um, advocate keep coming back when the state calls it the central re registry and talk about the waiting list. Um, but there are more people on the waiting list that are enrolled in, in the program. A couple years ago, I think there were 2,500 people in the state on, on the DD waiver itself, and there are like 3,000 people on the waiting list. And I don't know how those numbers have changed, but um, it's pretty serious. I think they decided it would take um, $30 million to get everybody off the waiting list. And, that, and that's with a federal match, and so that's 3 million state dollars, and the state just hasn't been able to do it. When, when are they taken off? Or when do they leave services? Is there, is there any kind of, like if, do they have to die? or is You can, it's a, a lifetime service unless 
you decide that you don't need it anymore or you move because it's not a federal it's a federal program but the state manages it so if somebody moves to another state they start over in that state system okay. oh, would um, they have to reapply right yes wow. but you can imagine for military families that's a real challenge so yeah. we'll have families that move here and their child is 14 and they have to go through the process all over again that's a real and wait 12 years really hard they leave before they yeah they leave yeah. the state yeah. So um, it's, I, I wish I could say that it was a great resource for you to get people on, but um, just know that it's, uh, it's pretty, a pretty uh, long um, wait and it, it's pretty hard. And there's no way to fast track certain. You are ahead of my question. <laughs> Sorry. No, good <laughs> so you can get some services while, while you're waiting and the services actually depend on what money the Department of Health has at that time. Um, respite is pretty um, consistent that you can get that, and I think it's about 600 hours a year, um, which you, when you put that to a year, that's not a whole lot. Um, it's better than, it's absolutely better than nothing, but it's not a lot. The adult day program is really based on if the agencies that um, provide those services have availability and if the state has funding. So. Again, even while you're on the waiting list, you might be on a wait list for uh, a program. Um, you can have a behavior support consultant. I am just um, going to go out there and say behavior support. Consulting is not treatment, and so a lot of times it's somebody who just kind of comes in and um, gives people tips on how to work with people. Okay, this is the question. How do you get on the waiver? Quicker. Um, the death or really terminal illness of a caregiver, which nobody wants to have. Um, the finding of a, abuse, neglect, or exploitation um, by Child Protective Services. And the thing that you know, I would think that your community would be interested in is the court order. And that's for somebody who's been adjudicated and that they just can't seem to find services. You can ask um, a judge to. Um, uh, make a ruling that the person should be on the waiver. Um, I haven't found that also successful with some of um, my guys who have been in trouble with the law, that the um, judge was willing to do that. Or that the waiver was not. It has been or has not been? It hasn't been so far. So they, it's it's so kind they of one that they don't use very much, and I'm not sure why. But if, when it is used, is it successful? Or it's just you can't find a judge that's saying it? We couldn't find a judge to do it but it's one of the criteria so i think it's a good thing for like your community to use for an advocacy tool um and i can find out um more information around that and, and get it to you because that um seems to me that that would be uh, you know one of the things that you could use it'd be very useful mm -hmm. so within um the dd waiver for people who can um direct their their own services um, there is this pro this program called media and the, the person really has to be doing well enough that they don't need a case manager and um, and, and and there are people in that um, situation and there are people who 
um, before we had the long waiting lists who, you know, their families got them on the waiver and they're living at, a lot of these folks are people who are living at home and their families who have decided to take on the task of being there, um, uh, coordinating their services and the family gets, um, can get paid for family living and, and that kind of thing. And, um, there's a big question in, in kind of the DD community is, um, having somebody, live at home with their families, is that really self-direction and is that a move towards independent living? And that that's always a, a question that comes up because most of the people who do self-directed as adults, they're not really, even though the um, criteria is that you need to self-direct, it's really their families who are um, doing this, the self-direction. But it's nice because they get to figure out what staff to um hire and how much to pay them and um the the criteria is, is a bit different so it um for some families it works out really nicely so i would guess that most of the um folks that that you all have interactions with are medicaid eligible and um so then that's why I wanted to talk about the community benefit that's available through um, Centennial Care. And I'm sure that you know that these are the um, MCOs. So the MCOs, the managed care organizations, the four. Um, so Centennial Care does have um, a program that um, has a, a little more services than kind of straight traditional uh, Medicaid. And so the individual must meet a assessment, and it's called the NIFLOC, the Nursing Facility Level of Care. Um, and a, somebody from the MCO comes out and does the assessment. Again, I have um, some challenges with this around, because I, I work with mostly with people with autism, and so most of their needs are behavioral, and they're not... Um, they might not necessarily, you know, they know how to make a sandwich or they know how to take a shower, but it's um, being out in the community and um, controlling aggression or self-injury, um, that's the problem. And so sometimes it, it's hard to um, qualify um, some of my folks um, for the community benefit, but I, I keep trying because it's um, it, it does have a few more services. And so they have, um, some of these services are similar to the um, ones on the waiver. So if you can um, get somebody qualified for this, there's a, they get um, more than just doc, kind of doctor visits or behavioral health visits that you get through Medicaid. And, and to qualify for that, Gay, it seems that a lot of the individuals have to advocate for, with their care coordinator for that, right? It's not something that's automatically going to be. Yeah, the, the MCO just doesn't offer it. And that, that's why I brought it up here. If you're having interactions with folks, either their family or um, uh, somebody in their life can call the managed care organization and say, you know, this person needs more support and you have a program called the Community Benefit. And it's um, it doesn't have... Um, it doesn't have a waiting list for people who are on Medicaid. Really? And so, this is just for someone on Medicaid? This yes. Is not this for is someone just, that's on the waiver? No. Okay. The, the waiver has a richer package of services. Right. And, so this and one is, doesn't exclude the other. You can be on the waiting list for the waiver. And, and, get the, and Yeah, that's why I talked exactly. about this, even though it's not a waiver. 
it's um, and the managed care organizations don't talk about it because it's it's a richer package. And so, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's there's still there's more. There's those personal care hours um, at, for people who have problems with with their ADLs. Um, again, for people who have activities of daily living as ADLs. Sorry, your your face is just showing me. Is it okay. similar cutoffs too? I mean, it's, is it about intellectual disability or is it no? It's more kind of physical. You have to meet that nursing facility level nursing. care that you'd be in a nursing home. So again, for people who have behavior um, dementia. That, yeah, yeah, that would. Um, but for people, like some of my young adults who have autism, I have a hard time qualifying them. But we, we try like heck, and um, sometimes we, we do it. And it's, it's another thing that when um, you're trying to show that all, um, all resources have been exhausted, you know, when you're appealing um, to the waiver and if there might be you know, adult protective services, child protective services involved. You, you kind of want to have, have done those steps just to show that um, you're trying. So there are some helpful tip sheets. I think what, you know, all of it, it's a lot of information and the, the navigating the systems is really complicated. And so how do you help people or support them in accessing what they need. So um, this is one way, is that they have tip sheets. If you go to this website, you can see below, it's on the Center for Development and Disability, part of the information network, and they've come up with these actually really nice tip sheets that are very straightforward, they're very practical, and give you step-by-step, -step, this is what you do. This is the, the this is the terminology that's used because they have their own language. Central registry is waiting list that kind of thing. So um, it's nice for families or for adults that they can get this one page tip sheet that will give them step by step. This is how I apply, and and you can see all the different types of tip sheets they have. How to apply for Centennial Care Medicaid, um, the developmental disability waiver. They have actually allocations, so once you're allocated, what do you need to know, which is actually you do need to know that there's a whole process around that. Now we've waited the 12 years, now we're allocated. There's some real rules around that and some the processes that you need to follow in order to get it while it's there. Um, and, uh, and other tip sheets, actually, they've got quite a variety. So very, very helpful um, website to check out. Um, also, we have, and that's part of the work that Gay and I do, the Autism Family and Provider Resource Team is at the Center for Development and Disability, and that's part of the work that we do there for families or for adults with autism spectrum disorder, um, and, and we have a statewide phone line and taken phone calls from throughout the state of New Mexico, actually from families, from adults with autism, and actually also from providers. We talk with a lot of different providers, community members that have questions, um, but it's just such a complicated system, and you can see the criteria for the, the DD waiver. Some of our folks don't 
meet that criteria. So that's where our team kind of steps in and trying to help them not only navigate the resources in their area, but also navigate the service system, which is so individualized. It's so different. It matters on who you are, what you have access to, what you qualify for. So that's what we do. Um, What's really nice is that if we can't help them, then we can kind of move them into a higher level of service, which is a lot of the work that Gay does um, that is really helping someone in some of these higher level, um, more challenging situations. So we do that as well. Um, if you are, um, if you're working with someone that does not have autism, and I don't know that we have that on here, um, I can probably back up. I'm not sure if I well, can. You can call the Center for yeah. Development and Disability, and they, we have there an information network um, that, uh, and it, even if you yeah, call you autism call programs, we will put you through yeah. to the information network if they don't have autism. But there is another team there that for all calls that are not related to autism, they will help them or try to get them to whoever they need to get to. So we try to make sure, you know, the good thing is, is that it is, you know, it's a big system and there's actually many big systems in the life of a person with a disability, but to know the main, you know, the places you can send them where we can make sure that they get where they need to go and not necessarily that we're the answer, but we might find another place that can support them. So um, you can always send your families or your adults or you yourselves can call our we have a toll free line there um and we'll get all these numbers out to you guys too in email and most of our folks with autism who would have um kind of law enforcement interaction is um people with autism tend to wander or mm -hmm. um some of them and um it's a huge problem in other parts of the country because um they also tend to like water and that um, you know, we'll, we'll find people too late. Um, fortunately, there's not that much um, water around here for people to wander to, but um, I was at a meeting yesterday with a family whose um, son, um, adult son, had disappeared from the group home and was not, or from an activity the group home took him to and was not found till two in the morning and they were just um, kind of in a panic. So um, those, those are the kind of interactions that, that our folks tend to have.